Hey, this is Dead Air. This is the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. We're on 70 radio stations across the globe. Australia, UK, Canada, United States of America. We also get an interview from time to time. We always like to throw those over at our website, deadairradio.org. And while you're at the website, deadairradio.org, feel free to sign yourself up for a uh, prize Need a miracle page? Slide on over there. Real easy to sign yourself up. You can also give us a call at 192-951-JERRY. That's 1-929-515-3779. You can also subscribe to the podcast at the, uh, however you get podcasts. Uh, if you're looking for it, we'll make sure that we're available. Now that we got all that out of the way, uh, there's a bunch of spotlight directed towards the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. You're going to notice that when you go to your local bookstore. How many of these other authors took the brown acid? Yeah, not only are we going to talk with an author of a Woodstock book. Woodstock, 50th anniversary, back to Yasger's farm. But the guy was also at the festival. Mike Greenblatt. Now, we will get into the brown acid a little later. Not the actual, we'll get into the story of the brown acid a little later. Uh, The people that were around me, their faces were sort of melting off. And then I saw a couple making love. But I looked closer. They weren't making love. They were doing some kind of crazy yoga. All right, well, here's Mike's rundown on his book. Well, you get hundreds of pictures, and many of them never before seen. I did 32 interviews for this book. I don't want to go down the uh, interview lineup rabbit hole just yet, but we will get into that as well as the brown acid story. Plus, I read nine books during the writing of this and, of course, my own memories. So we got a guy who went to Woodstock, read some books on the festival, some never-before-seen photos, should be enough for a book. But nope, still have those interviews. Everyone from the guys in the bands of uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Sly and the Family Stone, the Jefferson Airplane, I interviewed Carlos Santana. Mike says he started working on the book early 2018, but subliminally, he started gathering info way before that. Richie Havens in 1984, when I was his publicist, thank God I still got the tape, I used that. I spoke to Joe Cocker, I interviewed Joe Cocker in the 90s. Luckily, indeed, I asked him about Woodstock. I had interviewed Larry Graham from Sly and the Family Stone. Thank God I asked him about Woodstock. He started wrapping up the book in September of 2018, and he was still gathering interviews. Well, the last interview was just about a week prior to the start of production for this book, and that was Stu Cook of Creedence Clearwater Revival, who uh, wasn't too kindly to John Fogarty in that interview. Like a true music journalist, Mike wanted to hear what John Fogarty had to say. So I called Fogarty's people because he's out and about. He, he was touring at the time of the production of this book. And they referred me to the book that he wrote and said that I should take quotes from him from his book. He would not talk to me. So fine. That's exactly what I did. I said, watch out. that I remember about CCR's performance at Woodstock that Fogarty did talk about in his book was about how everybody was cold, tired, 
and half asleep, except there was this one guy out in this sea of mud of sleeping people and mud and uh, garbage, and that person was having the time of their life, dancing, screaming, hooting and hollering, and enjoying every moment of it. Mike Greenblatt confirms that John Fogarty basically said he was performing for that one guy. Yeah, he said that's that's in his book, and I use that story. Because when they got on, it must have been like one o'clock in the morning, something like that. It also should be noted that CCR was the band who performed after the Grateful Dead. But they were so good. And that's what's cool about the book, Woodstock, 50th anniversary, back to Yasker's farm. Not only are you going to get interviews, but you're also getting the experience of a person who was actually there. You know, Fogarty was wrong in, uh, in not letting that performance be in the movie or the album. He was dead wrong. Because they were great. Some of CCR's performance was released later on on a box set titled Woodstock, 40 Years On, Back to Yasger's Farm. You know, back then, you determined how good a band was by how much they sounded like the record. That's what we used as our arbiter on how good a band was. And Credence, Credence sounded exactly like their records. You know, it's a simple format. We loved those songs. Uh, uh, Fogarty was in great voice. He took great searing electric guitar solos. The rhythm section was tight. Uh, I thought that their set was great. Yet for some strange reason, Fogarty refused, absolutely refused. And the two guys, you know, the two guys that I interviewed, Stu Cook and, and the other guy, they, they still, they still don't talk. Never-before-seen photos. We're going to get these really cool interviews. Also, the experience of somebody who was there. And the experience of this guy was, obviously, he has a music journalist background. I write for Goldmine Magazine, a classic rock magazine that's been around since the late 70s. And my editor there, Pat Prince, we go to Yankee games together. And he always loved my Woodstock stories. Their faces were sort of melting off. And then I saw a couple making love. But I looked closer. They weren't making love. They were doing some kind of crazy yoga. He would always goad me into telling him about my Woodstock stories. He got such a kick out of it. He's a really good guy. And 
the company that owns Goldmine also has a book division, and they put out the 40th anniversary book in 2009, and it did very well. So when they made plans to do a 50th, Pat Prince, the editor of Goldmine, suggested I do it. There it is, a home run, a win-win combo, Mike's Woodstock experience and also his lack of experience. We didn't get to see Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. But Mike Greenblatt made up for it with his music journalism experience. I wound up apologizing to Graham Nash 49 years later <laughs> for not sticking around and seeing their set. We are stars. he did were with the uh, guys behind the scenes. I found the guy that did the sound, uh, Bill Hanley. He's known as the father of festival sound. I was lucky to find him because he gave me a great interview about the various problems that he had with the sound system. I mean, he had to make sure that the people on the top of the hill like a half a mile away could hear it while not blasting out the people in the front row. And he did. And then there were these guys that became Woodstock MVPs. Professor Chris Langhart of NYU. No, that's a guy you need to know. Professor Chris Langhart of NYU, who was working at the Fillmore East for Bill Graham. One of my favorite Woodstock stories comes from. Professor Chris Langhart of NYU, and who wound up doing everything from building a bridge to the stage from the backstage area so the artists wouldn't have to walk across a field with thousands of fans. He also had the uh, medical tent constructed. He even put Christmas lights in the woods so us stoned-out hippies could find our way back to the car by following the Christmas lights. How's that for being a genius? As he told me, he bought out every single Christmas light in New York City in the month of August. And it wasn't easy. Out of all the musicians, there was one interview that really stood out. His Woodstock performance also stood out. So Mike decided to have the man write the foreword to the book. I always thought that Country Joe was the heart and soul of Woodstock. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're certainly delighted to be here today. I'd like to start off by portion of the show. But give me a taste of a little something we call rock and soul music. On the first day when he performed, he came out not even expecting to play. And he did that beautiful song that he wrote for his former girlfriend, Janis Joplin. And and then he did some country songs. And then nobody was listening to him. Everybody just totally ignored him. And he walked off the stage and he said to his manager, they're not listening to me. And the manager goes, you got to do another song. And he goes, well, how about if I do the fish cheer? Give me an F. And he goes, "Uh, okay, do whatever you want. They ain't listening anyway. And he comes back to the stage. And of course, the fish cheer is, you know, give me an F. Give me an F. Country Joe spells it out for you. It starts with the letter F. Give me an F. Give me a U. As you can probably guess, he doesn't spell fish. What's that spell? You can use your imagination. And I got to tell you, when you're 18 years old, 
1969, shouting out that word at the top of your lungs with tens of thousands of other people around you is very liberating. And it was hilarious. It represented freedom. We shouted it out loud. What's that spell? We shouted it out. What's that spell? We shouted it out again. That was that was my favorite moment of Woodstock. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam way down yonder in Vietnam. Country Joe's moment of Woodstock, it didn't end there. On Sunday, after the deluge, uh, he came out with his full band. And we did it again. And it really revived our spirits. Because at that point, uh, at that point, it wasn't fun anymore. I mean, I was hungry, thirsty, freezing after the rains came, soaked. Everything that we had in preparation was back at the car, including clothing and a tent and food and water and pot. What? We didn't know where the car was. Oh, yeah, the car. Country Joe, he starts off the book. We were there for uh, 30 hours before the music even started. As for Mike's journey, it starts out like a confusing, tedious board game, literally. We got there after a ridiculous traffic jam where on Route 17B, the only road leading into the Bethel Hills area, uh, we were stopped so long that we set up the Monopoly game on the roof of the car and played Monopoly. How far did you get in the game? Did, uh, you, did you complete the game? Well, that's <laughs> that's just it. I don't remember. I asked Neil just before I started writing the book, did we ever finish that Monopoly game? And he says, I don't think so. <laughs> key character in Mike's Woodstock adventure is his buddy, Neil. My friend, Neil Yeager, who I went to Woodstock with, turned out to be a successful author of nine self-help books. He has a, a, a sanctuary in New England for businessmen who want to learn how to deal with the corporate mentality. He's, he's a huge success. He goes down to Key West during every winter and relaxes in Key West before coming back to New England for the rest of the year. I'm amazed at what a success he's been. Mike and Neil lost touch with one another throughout the decades, but were reconnected in the process of publishing this book. Mike even asked Neil if he could interview him. And at first he said no, because he's got this clientele that's very straight-laced and corporate. And I go, come on, man, it was 1969. It could only do you good in these people's eyes. Come on. And, and I was upset with him, but then he turned around and he said, okay, fine. Yeah, compared to the musicians, compared to the uh, MVPs that were behind the scenes at Woodstock, even Country Joe, it was Neil who proved to be one of the best interviews. He wound up giving me such a great interview uh, because his remembrances were so succinct and concise and to the point that the publisher used some of what he said as boxed quotes. They even named a chapter. Uh, after what he said. So his mother said, no, you ain't going to Woodstock. And this famous line, which was used as a title of the chapter, he goes, but mom, there's going to be parental supervision. (laughs) 
Now, if Neil's straight-laced corporate clientele happened to listen to this, here's something that is impressive about Neil's Woodstock experience. I got to tell you, stayed straight the entire four days. Didn't so much as drink wine or smoke pot. As for Mike Greenblatt, what did he do for Woodstock? Meanwhile, I was tripping my brains out. I guess this would be the time for the brown acid story. (laughs) This nice lady had given me a loaf of bread and a hit of this brown acid. And when the guy on stage, Chipmunk, made the famous pronouncement, which was in the movie. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received. Don't take the brown acid. That the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. I freaked out and I yelled, I just took it. So it started coming on at the same exact time that my friend Neil had left me to find a phone booth to call our moms. And I was alone. And the acid started hitting me hard at the same time that the skies got really black in the middle of the afternoon. I thought I was hallucinating. And I noticed everybody looking looking up at the sky and pointing. And then they had the announcement, listen, uh, we got this storm coming. We're gonna not play any music for a while. Just hang on tight, hold on to each other. We'll be back. And then it poured. I mean, it poured. The beautiful spot in front of the stage that we had all four days. Now, when Mike says close to the stage, this is how close he was. Oh, baby, I gotta tell you. Friday night, Melanie sitting on a chair, acoustic guitar in hand, uh, single spotlight. I saw her face. We were really close. So we got there Thursday. So we set up our spot in front of the stage Thursday morning. By Sunday evening, after a two-hour weather delay, their primo spots started to sink. I was now ankle-deep in mud, so I couldn't sit down anymore. But I couldn't leave because Neil would never find me. So I just stood there. So with no music playing, Mike drifted into another headspace. It hit me. It hit me hard. And it never went away. It, it just it just kept getting heavier and heavier. It just got so surreal and so crazy that uh, I just tried to hold on and survive. It became, as I say, it became a survival story. What was idyllic Thursday, Friday, and Saturday was a survival movie on Sunday. As a survivor of the crazy weather delays and the Woodstock brown acid, Mike Greenblatt would like to offer one disclaimer. I don't want to scare you. The brown acid isn't poison. It's just poorly manufactured. If anything, just take a half a tab. (laughs) Uh, I had taken a whole tab. Now, Mike's response wouldn't make Neil's straight-laced corporate clientele happy. However, it was Neil that came to Mike's rescue. Finally, Neil came back. Thank goodness he found me. I don't know how he found me. But uh, he came back, and uh, we watched uh, Country Joe and the Fish was first uh, after the deluge. And then came uh, the band, Johnny Winter, 
but it was getting late. Neil was getting grouchy. I wanted to stick around for Hendrix. Neil's going, we got to go, man. We got to go. But we had made an agreement that we weren't going to leave unless both of us wanted to leave. And there was no way I was going to leave when the band played. Oh, my God. They might have been the best musically out of anybody. And then Johnny Winter. I mean, I've always loved Johnny Winter. He was so exciting. I wasn't going to leave during Johnny Winter. So then after Johnny Winter, we got into a bit of an argument. He really wanted to leave. Uh, and then when they announced Blood, Sweat, and Tears with David Clayton Thomas singing that stupid spinning wheel song. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. Talking about your troubles, it's a crying sin. We looked at each other. And we didn't even have to say anything. I, 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 he said, all right, we're out of here. I go, but what about Jimi Hendrix? He goes, Jimi Hendrix, we got to get out of here. Now, I said, okay, okay. So we left. It must have been about two o'clock in the morning. Neil and Mike weren't the only ones who were wet, tired, and ready to go home. They skipped out on the remaining performers. And of course, we didn't get to see Jimmy. Now, not too many people did get to see Jimmy. Out of 500,000 people, he played basically to a sea of garbage. At 10 o'clock in the morning, Monday, maybe maybe 30,000 stragglers were still there. The two friends walked away from the site and to the car that they hadn't seen in two days, which also had some necessities, which was a factor to why they left. It's not like we were able to brush our teeth or bathe or eat or drink or go to the bathroom. Although they left Woodstock, Woodstock never left them. Richie Havens had the great line, we're all still at Woodstock. And that's so true. I think it was because of Woodstock, I became a music journalist, number one. It's definitely because of Woodstock that I, I could reach a state of zen at a concert, even today, when people are uh, rude or, or with their cell phones or talking or jostling me or pushing me or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because as long as the music is playing, we're okay. And that comes right from Woodstock. Uh, the horrible four hours or so when there were no music, when there was no music, was really bad. But I kept thinking to myself, as long as there's music. As there's music, we're okay. That comes right from Woodstock, and it's it's kept with me my entire life. Even even today, it's 68. As long as there's music playing, I'm okay. Mike shared many stories of uncomfortable horror. Even without strong psychedelics, it would have been tough for any person to grasp the situation with the negatives and positives. You take a half a million people in one place and you put them through conditions that were not very conducive to uh, friendliness. No, not enough water, not enough food, not enough bathrooms. And then you add a, a, a horrific monsoon 
on Sunday. And you'd think it could have been horrible, but there was not one reported instance of violence. That's impossible. That can't happen. It was a cosmic accident. People fed each other. I was one of the people that stood around doing nothing because I was tripping so bad on Sunday. I stood there tripping my brains out, looking at this tableau in front of me and guys that I would be scared to meet on a dark corner in Newark, New Jersey, where I was raised, were building fires and feeding people. People gave me bread. They shared their pot. They shared their wine. It was unbelievable how everyone in, they cleaned up. We cleaned up garbage. Saturday morning, uh, one of the promoters got on stage and he goes, so we're going to be passing out garbage bags. If you would be so kind as to clean up your area. We cleaned up garbage. Everybody here that's got a Peace Patrol uh, t-shirt on, they're here to help you. If you stub your toe, if you put something down your throat that doesn't belong there, if you're feeling dizzy, if something weird's happening, find one of them, they'll help you. We, uh, it was really a communal exercise in what we stood for, peace and love. And we proved it. Meanwhile, the rest of the world continued on. We knew that it was a, uh, a big deal. At first, we didn't, of course, because when you're in it, you're, you're sort of in the middle of it and you don't realize the importance of it. But Arlo Guthrie came out Friday and he held up the New York Post. Very interesting headline in the Daily News. And he said that famous line, he goes, the New York State Thruway's closed, man. Traffic uptight at Hippie Fest. We realized at that time on Friday night that uh, the whole world's watching. It's really exciting and probably one of the most frightening responsibilities that we have. We have the ability to gather this many people in this industry uh, with the vibes that we have here present. And that sense that the whole world is watching what we're doing here this weekend permeated the entire four days. This also gives us the responsibility or forces it upon us whether we really like it or not to take care of us all. It was the perfect peace party for the perfect time. The press was declaring the hippie dead because the Charles Manson thing had just happened. Uh, we're going to have an experiment in this phenomenon that no one else, I think, has ever had. There needed to be a reason to celebrate. A man walked on the moon like a week before Woodstock. Welcome yourselves to this experiment. That was on everybody's minds. A break from the madness. We've got a lot of responsibility. Everyone was against the Vietnam War. Back in 69, if you saw a fellow long hair on the street, you can pretty much rest assured that he was against the war in Vietnam. Let's face the situation. We've had thousands and thousands of people come here today. This was an opportunity for everybody to be on the same team. Against Nixon and Agnew. Many, many more than we knew or even dreamt or thought would be possible. And inviting others on the same team. We were all afraid that we were going to get drafted and go fight this immoral, illegal war in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. We're going to need each other to help each other to work this out because we're taxing the systems that we have set up. And acknowledging the people on the team. We're going to be bringing the food in. Civil rights was uh, rearing its head. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here. Even in the cold, attendees couldn't help but feel the warm fuzzies on the inside. Is that the man next to you is your brother? And so is the seeds of uh, gay pride. And you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, then we blow the whole thing. But we've got it right there. The situation in the village 
had just happened with that gay nightclub that was uh, there was some violence there. So it was the seeds of, of gay pride, too. So there was a lot of things we were all united on. Even with this force of nature, Woodstock stood for peace, not only in the world, but peace of mind at the present moment, keeping the outside stuff on the outside. I think the politics of this event. Of course, Abby Hoffman got up and tried to do a little political rant. I think the politics of this event is about freeing John Sinclair from prison. That's the politics of the situation. And I think we like ought to do something about John Sinclair and what the White Panthers are going through up there in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Pete Townsend hit him over the head with his guitar. <laughs> he kicked him right off the stage physically. I can dig it. Woodstock was all about the peace and the people, regardless of just how goofy the people were. Wavy Gravy, the hippie clown, of course, he wasn't Wavy Gravy back then. He was still you Romney, and he was responsible for the medical tent and for feeding people. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. Uh, his hog farm had uh, flown in from New Mexico with 15,000 pounds of grain and oats and raisins. Now, it's going to be good food and we're going to get it to you. It's not just the hog farm either. It's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. That leads us to one unconfirmed record for Woodstock. I think granola was invented at Woodstock. There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. For the confirmed stats of Woodstock, there's a page for that. I'm a stat freak. I love stats. Being a baseball fan, I love stats. So what I did was I listed all 32 acts, the time they went on, the time they went off, the personnel, who played what, and the set list, and for an added fun list, their top five albums. And I also have a page called Invited to the Dance, but you'd be amazed at the artists who were invited to play Woodstock, but for one reason or another did not. That page is one of my most fun pages because this this list is just incredible. One of the most notable acts who turned down the fest was Joni Mitchell. Her promo team thought it would be better to go on the Dick Cavett show. Also joining her was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who played the festival and made it to the taping of the show. They even arrived on the set with mud on their clothes. Nash told me a story that's uh, one of the highlights of the book, towards the end, about how they get back to the suite in Manhattan. He was uh, Joni Mitchell's boyfriend at the time. And uh, there was a, a grand piano in the suite. And uh, they get back, Joni goes... Uh, I was sitting here watching it on TV, listening to it on the radio, and I wrote a song about it. He was walking along the road And I asked him, where are you going? This is what he told me And Nash describes hearing Joni's version of Woodstock for the very first time. He said, I'm going on to I'm gonna join in a rock and roll band. I'm gonna camp out on the land and try and get my soul. And they all loved it. And Stills looks at her and he goes, uh, 
wow, can, can, can we have that song? And Joni loved all four of them. Yeah, she, she goes, yeah, of course. And then he says, uh, can we change it around a little bit? And then, of course, you, you know what they changed it into, that wonderful uh, recording on Deja Vu of, of Joni's Woodstock. But uh, that was one of my favorite stories that Nash told me. We are stars, we are Joni Mitchell, she wasn't the only one who watched the news surrounding Woodstock on the television set. When uh, the the world at large realized what was going on, Governor Rockefeller in New York didn't like it. And he was very close to sending in the National Guard to disperse everybody, tell them to go home at the butt of a gun, the National Guard. That would have been a big mistake. Just months later, Nixon sent in the National Guard to quell a student demonstration at Kent State University. And four students were killed by the American National Guard. Imagine if Rockefeller sent the National Guard to send everybody home at Woodstock, 500,000 people. I mean, God knows what would have happened. John Morris, one of the organizers, and a hero in my eyes, got on the phone with uh, the governor's office and convinced him otherwise. Not only did the National Guard not get invited, but hardly any local authorities weren't invited to the festival. 500,000 people, it was the second largest city in the state at that point. There was no no police, Gosh, that's a tr- no security, <laughs> no one to give your ticket to. We just threw it away. We threw our ticket away. Where do we give it? Who do we give a ticket to? We didn't know. Uh, so you did buy a ticket. That's hilarious. I bought my ticket for $17.50 at the last straw in Bloomfield, New Jersey. That covered all three days. The rest of the world was definitely watching, including the mothers of Mike and Neil. The news reports emanating uh, from the festival were nothing but negative, uh, keying in on the fact that there wasn't enough food, water, or bathrooms. It was declared a disaster area. The site was declared a disaster area. What they didn't say was how much fun we were all having. I could just imagine my mom watching TV and freaking out. Earlier, Mike was sharing that story about Neil leaving him back at where they were sitting for the festival. And the reason for that was because Neil was going to go to a payphone and give their mothers a report. It took him four hours, but he finally made the phone calls. He, he called his mom and he asked his mom to call my mom. Yeah, you got to remember that these were still kids, so they didn't want to get grounded. She didn't let me go to the Beatles at Chase Stadium when I was uh, 14. But damn if I didn't get my revenge five years later when I went to Woodstock. The 
journey of Mike's Woodstock experience is documented in his book, Woodstock, 50th Anniversary, Back to Yasger's Farm. It starts with the traffic jam, getting to the site, the peace and the music at the festival, and his return home. It was the ultimate tailgate. I was having so much fun, I didn't even care if the music ever started because it was eight hours late. With heartfelt stories, the book is backed by heartfelt visuals. I end the book with my mother's tears when I finally get home. She hugged me and cried and cried and cried. And her tears are a metaphor for that generation trying to understand us. We were a handful. Yeah, you also get viewpoints or snapshots from backstage. Yeah, my editor, Paul Kennedy, did a massive job in collecting these photos and dealing with the various photo agencies, a lot of which are famous photos that you know and love. Uh, you know, the couple that graced the, uh, the Woodstock album uh, uh, draped in a blanket. We found that couple, by the way, 50 years later. They're still married, and we have a picture of them today in the book. I thought that was really cool. It's a mosaic of various viewpoints and pictures of these guys and gals that played this, the stage and what they looked like at the time, what they look like now, plus the people that I interviewed, the fans. I get different viewpoints and different pictures. And as I say, it's like a tapestry that all comes together in this book. Some of these stories that's in the book uh, might not have even been told before and probably uh, probably shouldn't be told. They probably want to keep stuff like this quiet. After the monsoon and the ridiculous winds on Sunday, the power cables that were underneath the ground and underneath us leading to the stage, the topsoil got frayed. Some of the promoters got really afraid that there was going to be a mass electrocution, that thousands of people were going to get electrocuted. And he started freaking out. Ultimately, it was not the main power line. A couple of shocks here and there didn't hurt anybody. And it never really came to pass. But there was a very brief period of time on Sunday where the promoters thought, oh my God, the topsoil's getting frayed. The power lines are underneath the soil. I could imagine their chagrin. <laughs> of course, there's plenty of stories about the craziness that went on the stage and the performances that were on the stage as well. Mountain. Mountain was so unbelievable. They were the loudest band I ever heard in my life. Uh, Leslie West's electric guitar shattered the night air with these unbelievable lead guitar solos. They were so good. I'll never forget them. Sly and the Family Stone was so good. Uh, we were up and dancing and shouting, higher, higher, I want to take you higher, higher. Uh, that was a highlight. And those were some of the highlights that uh, Mike had. As for a low light, and, whew, you know, this is uh, Dead Air, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for official releases. We're not holding any punches. A low light was the performance done by the Grateful Dead. They were awful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They were awful. And Jerry Garcia in Bill Graham's book said that they were awful. They had horrible equipment problems. Their, every time their lips touched the microphone, they'd get a shock. 
Uh, it was wet on stage. The monitors weren't working. They couldn't hear themselves. Yet they still opted to do Turn On Your Love Light by the Bobby Blue Bland Blues Band for like a half an hour. Now, come on, man. We were yelling at them, get off the stage, you suck. I'm sorry. And then I interviewed the two guys from Creedence Clearwater Revival who were waiting in the wings to go on. And they knew the dead because they're both from San Francisco. And, uh, and they couldn't believe the audacity of this band. They said that they were selfish. They kept playing and kept playing and they never got off the damn stage. And they put everybody to sleep. Big thanks to Mike Greenblatt for sharing his stories. This is Dead Air. We are stabbed.